All right, awesome. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening. Welcome to the Hot Owl. My name is Brett Piotti, and with me I have my trusty friend, and I want to call him a sidekick. He's just the guy that I want to hug all the time. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. I thought we got over the sidekick thing because I got called Robin and it was weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm not I your sidekick. I'm, yeah, Fair I'm not enough. Your yeah. Um, if you go back to the, what is I think it was the Hunt for Red October or something like that, and the Senpai Kohai and all that kind of stuff, like... I was always fascinated with that. So, anyways, we're friends. Uh, you're my BFF that I stalk. I stalk through your wife's social media, and uh, to get back to work, we're here to do this thing. So, again, let's go to the show. Let's go. Let's do it. So, the goal of the show today is to take a foray back into continuous integration, deployment, delivery, all of the all of the different uh, iterations of CI/CD, and and kind of look at this optimal uh, circle of life for your applications and and what they ultimately are, are desiring and, and what your developers are, are hoping that they could they could live in. So we're also going to dive into breaking monoliths into services, but then sometimes those services back into monoliths. So with us today, we have a very special guest, Rob Zuber, the CTO of CircleCI. Rob, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Doing fantastic. So, uh, again, thanks for jumping on the show. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, I've already told the people that you're the CTO of Circle CI, but let's talk a little bit about what you do day-to-day and then what got you there. Yeah, that's great. So, um, as far as what I do day-to-day, I, I run the engineering half of Circle CI. I think it's about half at this point. Um, it's changed a lot in the last uh, couple of years in my time there, so what I do day-to-day also changes. Um, but that uh, part of the organization is software engineering, clearly, but also um, site reliability engineering, our technical support team, along with documentation, developer advocates. Basically, everyone technical at the company um, is has the fortune of, uh, of working my team. Um, and uh, I got here through actually the, the one and only acquisition that CircleCI has done, uh, which was a, a small company that I started with two other folks called Distiller. Uh, it was an iOS continuous integration platform. Um, we were specifically focused on mobile, uh, but concluded that most people building mobile also were building some kind of backend or API to, uh, to work with that mobile app. Um, and there was a lot more work to do to get the full stack um, continuous integration platform pulled together. Um, at the time, CircleCI offered almost all of that, but didn't have iOS. So there was there was a really clear fit. Um, they were basically just down the street from us in San Francisco. We, we really liked the team. It's a much smaller team at the time. Um, and so we joined, that was um, August of 2014, um, integrated our iOS product, and then and then over time took on a, a bigger role at the company. Okay, that's, cool. That's cool, I, I missed by the way. That. Yeah, that yeah I completely missed that. Um, and, I, and I consider myself... A great, uh, a, a master of Google Foo. LinkedIn didn't indicate anything about Distiller. I saw Copious and, jeez, uh, um, uh, another company, YooHoo. YooHoo? Oh, YooHoot. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I didn't see Distiller at all. So where was well, it? How so so that's it? my fault. Yeah. Uh, I'm not the best at LinkedIn, I have to admit. Um, but uh, so Copious was a um, consumer marketplace. Uh, and that uh, was founded by myself, one of the founders of Distiller. So, so uh, a guy by the name of Jim Rose, who's now the CEO of Circle CI, um, and uh, another 
another guy that we worked with. And we started that company, grew it through an A. It was a, a social marketplace was basically what we were shooting for. So we were heavily built on top of the Facebook platform. Facebook platform sort of uh, became less important to Facebook, let's say, overnight. Uh, and that wasn't great for us. Um, and so we spun into building mobile apps uh, and we tried a few different things. And as we were doing that, we realized that um, mobile tooling was pretty bad. Uh, and so we saw an opportunity there. And so like all great consumer startups, we turned into a developer tools company. Uh, and so it was kind of the end of, of Copious. There was an overarching business called Utah Street Labs. Every, every good startup is called Labs before they actually know what it is that they're gonna do. Um, and so I didn't detail out sort of each of those steps, I think, on LinkedIn, but but the stiller was a, a chunk of that. Maybe uh, basically first half of 2014, that's what we were doing. So okay. uh, when when you, like, as you guys are looking at kind of Circle CI and Distiller coming together, was this a thing where, since you said you were down the street from each other, did y'all get together and kind of talk CI shop and, like, kind of know each other and it just seemed to make sense? Or did somebody approach somebody else or just knew each other through Circles? Or, you know, how close were you before? Yeah, so we, we weren't super close. Um, we knew of well, I can certainly say that at Distiller, we knew of CircleCI. Um, I don't know how much they knew about us. The folks there knew about us at the time. I'm sure they were paying attention to this space and would have at least um, seen us. But we had um, we had some mutual connections through uh, actually the the, the co-founder of Copius, who then left a, a guy by the name of Jonathan Ehrlich, was former Facebook. Um, one of his um, colleagues from Facebook was the lead on the Series A at CircleCI. Like, you know how it is in this yeah. world. Everybody knows everybody at some point. So there were there were lots of connections and lots of reasons for us to uh, at least get together and have a conversation. Um, and then, you know, through a lot of those mutual relationships, at least we were able to get a lot of background quickly and just understand that it was probably going to be a good fit. Like, I think the craziest part of the whole thing is that we had both built our services in Clojure, which is not a choice that many people make, as certainly in, two, I guess that was 2014, or, or in the case of Circle CI going all the way back to 20. 11, 2012. Um, not that that got us a lot of leverage in terms of integration. We basically took what we had learned at Distiller and rebuilt it in the CircleCI platform rather than trying to you know, operate two code bases. Nobody likes being in that scenario for like, well, maybe if they had been services independently, that could have been great. But but the way they were built, it was sort of two monoliths. Um, and, uh, but just the fact that we had that sort of same view of what was a great way to build a product and, and interest in tooling and stuff made it easier, I would say. Well, we got a, uh, we got a roundabout way of, of seeing all of your past there, right? So CircleCI, Distiller, Copious, Uhoot, all those kind of things. Um, you know, tell us, you know, the next thing we'd love to find out about people is kind of how they got to where they're at, right? So you're a CTO, clearly a technologist. Um, you know, we all, we're always curious, how do you get started in tech? Like, you know, what was it that got you, you know, geeked up about it? Yeah, that's, um, I hope interesting. I, it's always I was interesting. not, I was not a computer science graduate, uh, by any stretch. I, um, so I'm from Toronto. I went to a school called Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, I studied engineering physics there. Um, I thought I liked physics going into that program. Uh, I learned that physics didn't really like me by the time I got out of that program. Uh, that is a lot of deep, complex study for sure. Um, and so I ended up in a uh, in a manufacturing company when I first came out of uh, school, responsible for um, 
but basically production engineering or, or understanding the process. I think it was called process engineering, actually. So um, how the, how products were flowing through the the uh, production lines, where we were seeing defects. So we were actually doing um, assembly. So think Foxconn style of putting together all the pieces of electronics. I happened to be building for Cisco at the time. I didn't even know who Cisco was. Um, but, you know, it was building large, basically the backbone of the Internet in the in the late 90s. Um, but everything that we did in terms of analysis was done in in spreadsheets. Uh, and the company, it was called Celestica, was a, a spinoff of IBM. And so I had OS2 Warp on my desktop um, and like Lotus 1, 2, 3 or something like that, if anybody even remembers these things. And I spent the whole week, every week, constructing reports about what was happening in production. And by Friday around three, I might have a clue where problems were, but on Monday I had to start my reports again. Mm. So there was never actually any time to go solve problems on the production line. All we did was spend our whole week just typing stuff from one you know, output into another input or whatever. And, uh, and I thought, this seems crazy. We build computers here. I've heard computers could do stuff like this. Um, and so I bought this book on C++, because if you're going to start programming, you might as well start with C++. And I read it on the bus every day on my way to work and started writing basically little applications and tools to just move data around. I mean, I was basically building ETL uh, in C++ as a first language. It was like, oh, I would love, I can't find that code anywhere, but I would love to see it. As someone who has now been in the industry for 20 years and has a lot of commentary on other people's code, I would love to just, I, I can't even imagine that I freed memory anywhere in the entire set of tools. Um, so it was basically kind of data and analytics, and I was really interested in the in the coding element element of it more than I was in the work that I was doing. And my, my teammates loved it because they could actually just use this reporting system to then go, you know, actually do an analysis of the product line. Um, and then in about a year into that job, some friends of mine started a company called the Docspace Company. Um, it was a think Dropbox in the late 90s. So imagine file sharing except with only web-based forms. It was not great, but uh, it was it made sense, right? It was the right idea at the time. We just didn't have all of the tech that makes it amazing today. Um, and so they started this little company. I had no idea what they were doing, but it sounded really fun. So I joined them um, effectively to run a QA team. Um, and fast forward to 2000, we were acquired by a company called Critical Path. Uh, I moved down to the Bay Area as part of that acquisition. And the rest is sort of history in there. There's a lot of I moved to the Bay Area in, I think it was October of 2000, something in that time frame, uh, thinking I'm going to the the epicenter where everything is happening. And as I got off the plane with all my stuff, everyone was packing their cars and leaving. Um, it was not a great time in the Bay Area, but the weather seemed nice, so I've been here ever since. That's uh, that's interesting. You know, that's um, if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures or whatever, that's very Hidden Figures esque, right? Like, oh, this is interesting. I have a problem. I'm just going to go get a book from the library, and I'm going to figure out how to solve it myself. Uh, I don't know how accurate the movie is from reality, but uh, it's still, you know, it's a great story. And here you are, uh, a real embodiment of that. So, um, so no, like beforehand, you weren't like uh, taking apart clocks and and uh, things like that when you were a kid or. You know, things where like the parents, you're like, you know, okay, he's interested. Clearly, we're going to get him a rocket building kit. This is uh, 
this was a, a, a passion of necessity almost, or were there some other kind of precursors? Yeah. So, um, well, I was, I was realizing around the same time, because we had to do all this spreadsheeting, I managed to convince someone to give me a Windows machine and uh, use Excel and I learned VBA. So maybe that was really the first part of it. Uh, but and there was huge macros. I didn't even know how to turn off the the like visual changes on the screen. So it was just I would sit at my desk and the, like the spreadsheet would be building itself. Uh, I think it was actually just to impress people. Wow, that, he's really fast. Um, but you know, it's it's funny. So I, I have kids, and people always ask me, um, as sort of to your point of clocks. You know what what programming language should I teach my children? And I, I always respond with, please don't try to teach them programming. Just get them to to take stuff apart. Find anything in the house. I mean, my kids do construction on my house with me. So when I was when I was younger, I did stuff like that. You know, wiring the house with my dad and and just those sorts of of projects. So I definitely always had the mentality that I could solve anything. Um, and I think that's what gets you into just gets you into engineering. You love taking stuff apart and you know building things. And of course, we had in physics very hands-on labs and mm. and had to you know build stuff. We did tiny. I did tiny bits of. Well, Fortran, because uh, Fortran's, I think, still really big in physics. Um, but yeah, it was more that like Lego and just you know building. I I, um, I often actually we we were talking about guitars before before we started. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a, a Strat, and uh, luckily it was a Squire, which is the Korean-made you know cheap version. Uh, and I decided one day I didn't like the candy apple red. And because I'm someone who can fix anything, I sanded the whole thing down and repainted it and then proceeded to epoxy it to give it a nice sheen and completely destroyed it. Filled in all the <laughs> screw holes with epoxy. You can no longer get screws. You can't mount the pick plate. Uh, the neck doesn't go on properly. Totally ruined. And, and I rewired it while I was in there because why not? Uh, so the electronics don't work either. I ended up having to buy a new guitar. But um, those sorts of projects always were fun to me. Yeah, I hope you. I hope you have that. Brent would love to put it on his wall. You know, you're uh, you're, you're brand new, useless. You're welcome. To, the, the paint's not even that good. I'm definitely not an artist, so the paint looks kind of that's terrible. So uh, let's get into what, why we're really here, right? We've uh, we've we've got your journey, which is always beautiful. It's funny because we were just uh, we were just on Twitter the other day, and somebody was talking about how uh, they came from an English lit background, and here they are, a strategist for a um, one of the largest tech companies in the world. Uh, and so it's, it takes all types and takes all journeys to get there. And it's, it's always fun to learn it. And I think it's really important. So we appreciate you sharing that with us. And someone's going to hear that and go, yeah, my kids are going to be just fine. You know, they're all going to end up being uh, nerds working on uh, development and things like that. So look, we, you, you're solving problems today, right? And that's kind of what we really want to think about now. Um, so as we look at Circle CI, one of the things I wanted to bring up just first is the reason we reached out is there was an email that went around that had a, a blog post on Medium from it, and it came from one of your founders. Um, and essentially, you know, the, the blog post was, uh, um, ah, oh, it's the future, right? And, um, you know, the, it's the future, and he's talking about, you know, all the buzzwords and, you know, all these different things. And, you know, it kind of, it got, it got, it got uh, a polarizing response from the community. Um, so... You know, the first thing I kind of want to talk about is, you know, how do you feel? Uh, you didn't write it, we, you know, but, uh, you know, where, what's your stance on that whole kind of it's the future thing and, you know, the, the progression of tools and technology? I mean, literally a year ago, we could barely spell Kubernetes, you know, but today it's like the hottest word on the market and tomorrow it'll be something different, I think, you know. So 
what's your thought on kind of the progression of how fast this technology and tools that are important to people, how fast these things are going? Yeah, so I, I have a few thoughts. I mean, the the post, just to come back to that for one second, I, I it's really fascinating for us. We see how many times certain things are mentioned on Twitter, um, you know, either in Slack channels or in numbers or whatever. And that particular post makes uh, resurgences. It's almost like you could map out Twitter from our Slack channels that monitor Twitter by seeing when someone new spots it and then posts it and then it goes and it explodes into this big sort of retweeting, passing around a certain subset of the graph, if you will. Um, I spent a lot of time working on graphs. I'm very fascinated by the whole social network thing, obviously, with this, this social marketplace. Um, but it obviously strikes a, a chord with a lot of people, right? Like that people are definitely identifying with that and thinking, some are thinking, oh, this is, this is actually great. I love all these things. Others are thinking, yes, this is the insanity that is my life. Um, every single one of these tools is pointless and it just creates um, churn for me. I, I use that word specifically from a... Um, uh, Uncle Bob post about, I think he called it the churn, which was, um, you know, how much we love to create new tooling when the existing tooling would do. And that's also a polarizing view, right? You know, it's sort of, if I recall it correctly, I'm going to misquote it for sure, but sort of says, we were fine at Java. We could all get stuff done. Why didn't we just, and, and when we create a new language or we create a new tool set, we, well, tool set's probably the wrong word, but we don't have all the tools that go with it. So now it's sure it's great that you have, and we talked about using Clojure, but you don't have an IDE that understands it, you know, when it first comes out, you don't have great debugging tools, you don't know how to run it in production. And so we keep creating this overhead for ourselves um, as we invent things that we think are going to help us. That's a very interesting perspective on it. I, I, I personally think we're solving real problems in a lot of these cases. I mean, we, um, we used to use the, the baked AMI model, for example, in terms of our infrastructure. We've always been an immutable infrastructure company. So if we need to make a change, we are going to push out the entire box effectively because we don't want to do, let's find this piece of data and see if it's in the state that we expected. If not, let's change it into this state because that always breaks. Uh, we would rather just build something we know is good and replace the old one. And obviously in the cloud, you can do this sort of thing, which is which is great. Um, and we've moved from that to Docker. And that's been very good for us in terms of, I mean, we, we are a Kubernetes shop. Um, how we are able to do deploys is much simpler. We build much less tooling ourselves. Um, and so that's had, that's had great advantages for us. Was there a learning curve? Absolutely. Uh, both for our, you know, our teams that operate software as well as teams that, that build the software in terms of how they build it and package it. In terms of our um, CI and CD process, which is an interesting point because for us, we almost have to be doing all these things at the cutting edge because our customers are. And if so, if we don't, you know, adopt Kubernetes and Docker and maybe even try a few different container types and use a few different language stacks in our product, then we can't get real insight into what our customers are doing and how they're thinking about building. And we don't, we don't therefore progress our product to match, uh, which probably sounds a little bit like a convoluted excuse for being on the cutting edge of everything. Of course, we also are in the delivery pipeline of huge businesses. Uh, and so we can't be, um, 
we can't be doing stuff that's not going to be reliable and stable. But um, I would say a, a big part of we, we just did this 2.0 launch, uh, which was a replatforming in, in the July timeframe or, or launched in the July timeframe. A big part of that was repositioning ourselves to be a better aligned with how people are building software today and be more flexible to to continue to be aligned in the future because we had sent some drift away from how we had built because we were an artifact at the time of 2011, 2012 um, versus how people were building today. So we almost have to accept new technology on faith in order to just keep up with what our market and, and our customers are demanding from us, which is probably not common for every business. But as a result, we get to see a lot of this stuff and, and we we love a lot of it. And there are definitely things that we're like, eh, maybe that wasn't so helpful. Um, but but we definitely see it solving real problems for us, especially containers overall. Um, there's a lot to be figured out, I would say, in this space still. But um, as someone whose background, I, I sort of talked about starting out in QA, but I quickly moved into what we called systems engineering at the time would be sort of SRE and ran that side of things for a very long time in my career. And um, the number of problems that I've had over that lifetime that are now solved by how we're doing things today are, are bountiful. And therefore, I really appreciate, you know, a lot of what what's come along in the, in the last couple of years. Absolutely. So, so thanks for that, Rob. Uh, and, and it's funny because all of the things or most of the things mentioned in that article, um, you actually brought up um, in a, a post you did on Stackshare, which I just found out about this morning as I was reading up on you, which is fantastic. It shows you everything you're using, um, you know, from the development standpoint, from a CICD, from, uh, you know, where it lives, from infrastructure and, and data lives and all that stuff. Very, very neat. I would encourage anyone to go out and check out that website. It's, it's neat to see what other companies are doing. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting as I, as I dug into specifically CircleCI and, and that blog post was, um, you know, closure, for instance, right? So you guys started off, it sounded like a, a rail shop, lost that battle to closure, but you're still kind of, um, I think you, I, my point is there's a lot of things out there but even even though developers love that choice, um, you guys have kind of settled into closure a little bit ago um, for some other aspects of, of the platform. How 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 does that work in a in a developer world? Like that, that these guys are used to uh, specific languages or any of them and all of them, or they have this toolkit. How do how how did that go over with uh, the developers at CircleCI when you're like? Guys, closure is the thing, and and Rails, we're not doing it anymore. And let's go roll with this. Well, so so to be clear, the closure decision was made long before I joined CircleCI. It was a very very early. I, I honestly, I'm one of the few people that has even looked at the history of the um, the Rails piece and is still at uh, CircleCI. And uh, I, I find it funny that I can find Git references, you know, in the original application because you mentioned monoliths and uh previously of course our primary application is called circle ci as the github org slash circle because you're only ever going to build one thing and so just call the repo you know the name of the company now we have hundreds of repos um and so we call it circle circle which is everyone laughs at me when i say it but um that's what happens and i've seen this pattern in, in every company but it's a very very thin slice of history that many people don't know about this rails piece and i honestly think it was the the two founders of the company just saying 
and one introducing closure to the other and the other saying, oh, actually, that looks amazing. I want to use that. It wasn't a uh, it wasn't 20 Rails developers having to be convinced. Um, and so what's been interesting about Clojure, though, for us over the life of the company is, you know, we're scaling as a company. We have a much larger engineering team than we had, and we continue to grow that team. Um, we, I think the Clojure community in part has grown with us, I wouldn't say as a result of us, but around the same time. So we were pretty early adopters of Clojure, um, but people have learned it on their own. They've used it in side projects. There are other uh, companies out there using it now. Um, we happen to use some tools from from Walmart Labs, for example. So there's, there's people in, in other organizations that are working with this tooling now. And so that's made hiring a little bit easier. It was always a little bit of a, a challenge to find certainly experienced people. Um, on the other hand, we we didn't necessarily hire for closure and still don't necessarily hire for closure. You would probably want to be interested in using closure if you're going to come work with us. Um, but everybody's done a little bit if they did sort of some lisp or scheme or something like that in a in a maybe in their degree or or in some other uh, project and. Um, and people are really moving towards functional languages in general. That feels like a general theme to me. So those things are, are good and they, they provide a pool of, of people that we could work with who are at least interested in this space, um, might want to use these tools and we're happy to teach them. We have enough critical mass in terms of people who are very experienced um, to be able to, to teach uh, and, and mentor people as they learn the language. Um, but we obviously look for some all the other signs, aptitude, quick learning, and a general interest in it. Um, so it's been good. On the other hand, I think I mentioned in that post that we we don't use it for everything anymore. Uh, for example, in our new 2.0 architecture, we have a build agent that that sits inside the, um, the environment where your build is executing um, and shipping around blobs of closure into arbitrary environments because people can bring their own container, their own custom containers. Uh, and hoping that it's going to pull down all of its dependencies quickly and start executing um, is a bad idea. I'll just say that it's a very terrible idea. Um, and so we we ended up using Go for that agent. Um, there's, I would say that to this point that you're making earlier, a bunch of people that have been working in Clojure for a long time and love the the characteristics of Clojure. Um, it's quite a change to move and, and start working in Go. Um, and, but that's that's honestly going back to what we look for when we hire. We're looking for people who want to use Clojure because it looks like a great solution to the problem at hand. But when they are faced with the next problem, we'll use the, the tool set that feels like a great solution to that problem, as opposed to people who might say, Clojure is the, the perfect programming language and I will never want to use anything else because... That's our, our problem isn't to build things in Clojure. Our problem is to build a great CI and CD system for our customers. And that's not going to be the right solution for every piece of it. Fair enough. So cool. You know, and we've kind of danced all around this. And if it's not uh, evident at this point, right, Circle CI makes a CI CD tool, right? So it's a it, it's that that pipeline. But there are there are others out there. Uh, and why why do you, why was Circle CI, you know, founded? And uh, why does it continue to exist today? Yeah, um, great question. So CircleCI started in late 2011, and so it was there was pretty limited scope in terms of what was available. Um, at the time, uh, I 
as I mentioned, I was working on this this copious product. Um, we were using uh, that was a a Rails monolith. Let's say um, we can talk about some of the details later about that. But um, we were using Jenkins to build it, and um, and it was a decent amount of work, right? I mean, you can you can get that freely, download it, and operate it. But um, for me personally. The amount of time that we spent just trying to get it to do what we wanted to do, the number of customizations that we had to build that to get the process that we wanted, um, it, it was a lot of work. And it was a lot of work that we, you know, when we refer to it today uh, at Circle CI, we would call undifferentiated heavy lifting. I think I stole that actually from Adrian Cockcroft, if you know this. So, um, but we like it, so we keep using it. Basically meaning I'm putting a lot of time and energy into something that is important, but it's a lot of work and it's not what I'm building for my customer, right? It's not the thing that is my business and therefore, except if you're me and you work at CircleCI, but it's not, for any other company, it's not the primary objective of their business, right? The customer isn't looking at their CI and CD solution and saying, wow, that's really cool how they tailored that, I'm going to buy their product, right? They just see the end product. And so... If you can spend less time on that and more time on the product you're trying to build for your end users, then you can drive more value into your business, right? So we are trying to do all of that for you. Um, and we we offer a solution in two models, um, you know, or two deployment models effectively. So we operate it as a, as a SaaS offering, uh, but we also have what we call our server offering. So you can run it yourself if you want. Um, but for most especially small companies um, getting out of the gate, the last thing they want to be doing is building and operating a build server. So, um, and in going back to the the founding in 2011, the majority of companies were like copious at the time. It, you know, Rails was really hot. Uh, everybody was building sort of these single monoliths and, um, and there was a lot of capability in CircleCI, which still exists today to be clear, but, but what differentiated it even then was the ability to take one of those projects, identify exactly how it was built and how the tests needed to be executed and just do it all for you. So you signed up and clicked the button and you were basically at a green build, uh, which was a pretty different experience, let me tell you, from what we were doing, building our own CI and CD pipelines internally. Um, and so that was that was the hook. That's what got people in and that's how I, I would say CircleCI, uh, as someone who's worked on a lot of um, startups, CircleCI had the great fortune of effectively coming out of the gate with product market fit. Like This doesn't happen to a lot of people, but basically they bought their first Google keyword uh, and customers started showing up saying, wow, I don't have to do this myself anymore. Like, Sign me up. What do I do? I'm in. Uh, and then it was just a, you know, a growth spike from there. So... Um, I, I, like I said, I wasn't there at the beginning, but I wish I was because that sounds like a great experience. I am very accustomed to, cool, we just launched this thing. We got the tech, uh, the tech crunch coverage and, you know, we told all our friends and the first day was amazing and the second day it's crickets, right? Like, <laughs> oh, we totally built the wrong business. So uh, it, it was, a, you know, it was very clear from the beginning. And then as far as continuing to exist today, you know, that, that time frame, one of the, one of the reasons that we, we built 2.0 is we have now five plus years of experience uh, and learning from all of these people um, who've been building on a platform. I think the title of that post was uh, four and a half million builds a month. I mean, we 
we push a lot of projects through our platform. We see a lot of different stacks. So if you're into software development, it's really fun to work on because you just see how everyone else is doing things and they do things very, very differently. Um, and you know, being able to take all that as, as one of the sort of early providers who's reached this scale that we've reached, being able to take all that knowledge and, and continue to, to roll it back into the product um, just allows us to, to be um, sort of at the forefront of how people are thinking about development and how they're thinking about delivery um, and, and just continue to meet the changing needs of those customers and they, they keep coming back. So that's why we're still here. We, we keep growing. We're, we're very happy with our growth. Um, and so it, clearly it works for people and clearly they'd rather be building their own business. Yeah. It's, you know, two fascinating things that came, came from that, that discussion. And thank you. Uh, first and foremost was the, you know, the 4.5 million builds a month. And if we look at, uh, you've got roughly a hundred employees, uh, how many of those are developers? First, first of all, uh, the, the software development team or software engineering team is about a quarter at this point, about 25 people. Um, and then there's another, um, six or seven in our SRE team. Um, and we treat SRE as a effectively a delivery function as well. So, so they're primarily software developers. Um, so it's it's a good chunk. It's not what it was when the company you know the company was completely developers when it started. Um, but now we uh, now we have a lot of operations to run from a from a business perspective. And we yeah. you know we've grown on the marketing side um, and the sales side to to great effect. Um, so we're pretty. Pretty happy with that, especially as we've moved into um, enterprises. You know, we, we now sell to very large enterprise organizations as well. And so that's a very different relationship than just sign up online, put in your credit card and, and start building. Um, but it's still very much a, uh, an engineering focused company. Um, you know, our customers at the end of the day are, are developers, right? So understanding how they think and understanding what it is that they want to do is, is a primary function for the whole company. Yeah, it's just it's 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 amazing looking at you know just stats pulled from your website, but sixty five million builds of the platform over the past five years. I mean that's insane to think about of a for a, a startup, let alone you know today even um, you know with a few developers now going to call it thirty five or something like that, being able to to do that, it's it's absolutely awesome. Um, so the other point that I wanted to bring up, you, you talked about you know when you when you develop this. This at first, and you immediately had press and people wanting to use it. And now on July 11th, you you um, you release 2.0, right? So the the new iteration. And what I read was, and I don't know who exactly said this, and it may have been you, but the quote is, "You fundamentally changed the guts of the product, right?" So it took you six months to get this in in front of the customer, and then nine months of testing, kind of in beta or alpha. Um, and that absolutely goes against, first of all, you know what you've known and built and, and love, and fundamentally against the CI, you know, continuous integration and principle, right? So, talk to us about that. How like how, how did you come to this realization? Like, I'm going to disrupt everything that I've built, do a completely new greenfield deployment, and I'm going to do it in a way that is counterintuitive to what everyone around us would would have expected. Yeah, it was. It was scary. I think we use that word, or I use that word in describing it, um, because you, you know you you're very used to getting feedback very quickly, um, and 
we at the time, so going back to early 2016, certainly I was still of the belief that we could iterate our way out of um, some of the challenges that we were facing. Um, so we had some operational issues. I think that goes back into 2015, um, just as, as we started to reach scale. And some of that is in um, was covered in some of my microservices discussions. Um, as we, but we were taking this iterative approach because, hey, we have this huge site to run. We have a limited engineering team, and can we, you know, just find ways to to iterate our way out of this and and slowly evolve into a you know microservices architecture and and whatever. But when we when we sat down to think about it, um, and certainly there were a couple of members of my engineering team who who had strong opinions the other way and and were um, you know, sat down with me, basically, and we we had this conversation. It just became very clear that there was an opportunity, first of all, to do this in a, in a more sane way, which I'll get to in a second, and that there was not a great path out of where, out of the, or on the direction we were going. Um, again, I think in, in the post about this, we referred to it as a local maximum, which was, was absolutely true. We could iterate our way to something but it was still going to be limited by fundamental architecture decisions that had just been made in 2011, 2012, and and were not going to get us all the way there. And this this happens everywhere, for sure. I mean, there's, you know, Twitter pretty classically, you know, went from their Rails monolith to a completely other architecture over time. Um, and and so the realization that we could um, or that we needed to do something like this was was sinking in. And then the primary concern was how do we do this in a CI and CD way, like knowing everything that we do. And and I, I use CI and CD to refer actually to the whole scope of agile development, meaning we're moving quickly, we're learning from our customer um, to refer to what most people would refer to as DevOps, meaning you know we as developers own our stuff as it goes out into production. I kind of lump all that together because we're at the middle of it. Um, so whatever umbrella you want to put over it, how are we going to take that approach while doing this really fundamental architecture change? And so one of the first things that we looked for was was the seams. Like, where can we cut to insert a different, you know, build engine, which is effectively the core of what we do, but allow it to exist, A, within the the current infrastructure of everything else that we do, so we're not taking on this insane project of rebuilding everything, and B, run it in parallel. So that basically one, the, the, the very first goal was I want to take one of our repos and on one branch be able to run that build on completely new infrastructure because now I've taken out all of the risk of, of a big cutover, right? Of telling all the customers, oh, to starting today, you have to be building on this system, right? And so that was the first thing we aimed to achieve. And... We tried to do that as quickly as possible, and, and so it was six months before we had, you know, our first alpha customer coming on and kicking the tires. But in between, um, you know, we were running our own projects, we were showing it to people, we were again taking and digesting five years of learning and knowledge, and trying to take all of that and bake it into how we were thinking about design, um, and then just trying to fail as quickly as possible. Every assumption that we made about what would work, we tried to, you know, everything that was going to be risky, let's build on that really quickly and just build. It doesn't have to be great because no customer is operating on this right now. Like a, a big part of the conversation 
of whether or not we should do this. And, and it started out as really just those couple engineers, like really great engineers from the team, parking themselves, being protected from the day-to-day of the existing platform and being able to really work quickly on this. And um, part of the goal when we set out was think about this like you are starting a company, not like you're building on top of some massive existing system, but you know, move as quickly as you can and think about it like you, you know, you have all the freedom in the world to change and try things and, and whatever. Don't be committed to some particular path because we said this is kind of what it might look like. Um, and really having that freedom to, to move quickly. But also then we have you know, internal customers. Those people who are working on the existing product could put their builds on this and say, oh, well, it doesn't do this right. Or I had this error. Or once we tried to do this in parallel, this broke. So really trying to find any way to get early feedback that wasn't launching, you know, to all of our customers, uh, because definitely, you know, developing in a cave or whatever you want to call it and not talking to anyone about it and then coming out and saying, ta-da, we built this amazing thing. We all know is a recipe for disaster. So um, finding that that blend, I mean, of course, we used our own tools to, to do CI and CD at the, in the center of that, uh, but as quickly as possible, all the new projects were building on the new platform versus building on our uh, on our existing platform just so that we were testing as much as possible. And especially so the developers working on it would feel the pain of anything that was broken, right? Uh, it couldn't be, well, it's fine, I'll just build it on, on 1.0 until that we can go back and fix this. It was very focused on, let's make this thing do exactly what we need and then we can expand on it and expand the scope. And, and how long did it take you from the time you started to get to that minimum viable product where your developers could actually do CI and CD for the new platform on the new platform? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was on the order of maybe six weeks to two months, something like that. Um, they were they were running some stuff on it just locally, but to get it into our production environment in a way where you could uh, route individual jobs over to it, um, I was probably on the order of six weeks to two months. That's pretty interesting. And um, it, you know this this obviously this architecture going from a monolith to where you kind of went to with this new 2.0 architecture, were there some things that the SRE team learned along the way? Like were there some surprises that that weren't application specific but more of operation specific from the change in, in the operating model of the, the of the product? Absolutely. Um, there oh, wow, there's so many. I'm, I'm trying to think of where to start. <laughs> Um, I mean, we, we fundamentally changed a lot of things about our system, clearly. I, I would say that there was as much SRE influence into what we should change and how it should be built as there was uh, product or, or sort of outside consumer influence. Um, one of the challenges that we actually faced with this was we, we fixed so many things and changed so many things that trying to then wrap it up as to the market, this is what we've done for you in a, in a box. Um, was a little bit challenging. Um, and so on the operational side, I mean, we our, our model for builds in 1.0 was all based on LXC. Um, and we moved that to a Docker-based uh, environment in, in the 2.0 platform. How we scheduled jobs changes. So we, um, we had our own job scheduler that basically found capacity in the system and, and, um, and part of what we do in that is just ensuring that there's capacity in the system, right? And so we moved that actually to use um, Nomad uh, from HashiCorp off the shelf 
baked in basically and how we and it is responsible for finding capacity in the system because it's a, a really great tool that a lot of really smart people have worked on to to solve that specific problem um, but then how to operationalize that versus the things that we had built so a lot of the you know packaging deployment and then because we added some new independent services we also started this process of of actually how we deploy. So at the same time, we weren't just un, like changing the underlying architecture of how the build engine worked, but we were moving from this baked AMI deploy model into um, Kubernetes, containerized services. Um, so there was a whole other set of work basically happening at the same time, um, which I'm actually, it's funny whenever anyone asks me how to take on a problem, my first instinct is always two things, make it smaller, Find a way to iterate, make it smaller, and then decouple. Whatever two things you're trying to do right now, just pick one of them. But we just didn't have that opportunity here. Uh, because we had all these new services, taking them and baking them into this old AMI process and using old infrastructure to manage it just meant it was going to be longer that we had to keep that stuff around. Um, and so we, we did even more things that we always tell people not to do uh, and changed a bunch of our sort of management and SRE processes around that um, at, at the same time. And, uh, you know, speaking of tools, did they, uh, did they, besides the ones that you kind of mentioned, did they have to go out and find some uh, new tools or did you find that you were able to repur repurpose a bunch of the tools? Like one of the things in particular was, um, you know, PagerDuty. Were you using mm -hmm. PagerDuty before when it was more monolithic and it was system and application monitoring? And then now you're, you're still using PagerDuty, but you're using it from a piece part, you know, tiny pieces, uh, container type monitoring where things are, you know, ephemeral and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so that, that's a great example. PagerDuty we've always used, um, not, not to you know, overhype PagerDuty, but I don't even, I don't even know what else you can use, honestly, uh, other than writing your own bash scripts to text you through Twilio. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what anyone else uses. I've used PagerDuty for so long that I've forgotten that there's another way to do this. So, um, but yes, it was PagerDuty. The big thing about PagerDuty or just being on call was in a very monolithic model. It absolutely had to go to the SRE team or someone from that team who's on call. And it was their job to figure out even what area of the code base is being impacted right now or is causing this impact, and then maybe I can go find someone to escalate this to. Um, and one of the great things about moving to services and, and some of the services that we, partly through 2.0 transition, partly just through our own overall architectural transition, is someone builds and owns that piece of software in production and, and is now on call or the team is on call for that component. And when they realize actually it's outside of our scope, then they can escalate it so that there's much more ownership through the full cycle. Um, so the tooling, we're still using Datadog for you know monitoring and alerts, and then those alerts go through PagerDuty. So the tooling is the same, but, but sort of as you mentioned, the, the ownership and the process has shifted, um, and that's allowed us to de-scope the overall just bucket of the SRE team of anything that goes wrong, you have to figure it out and then you decide whose help you need, um, which is pretty hard for a small group to understand what everyone else is doing versus I built this thing, I put it into production. If it starts to fail, I should understand why. And then if I need resources to help me, I can go find those people. Yeah. So speaking of shifting, I'm going to steal your word and I'm going to do it. Um, one of the things that we're always curious about is 
you know, obviously you know, you've kind of showed your platform and how you've used your own thoughts and methodologies to shift the way you're doing things. You're also selling your platform so that other people can shift the way they're doing things. And obviously you've got some big customers that are out there that are, that are, you know, by name, you know, Facebook, Spotify, GoPro, Kickstarter. Um, all of those are great names in this space. Is this something where they have two or three different CI tools and different teams use them in different ways? Or why is somebody buying Circle CI and not say one of the incumbents, uh, you know, of all the names that are out there in this space? Why are they choosing Circle CI or why are they moving to it? Well, I think six years in, am I allowed to consider Circle CI an incumbent? I feel like I feel like that's a pretty long time in this yeah. uh, in this universe that we live in. Um, so great question. I, I would say definitely depends on the size of the organization, right? If you're a small startup just getting going, um, you're not going to pick two or three CI tools. Um, but we also work in organizations where other companies have been acquired into those organizations, right? And so you'll find either um, teams with different practices or um, you'll find uh, just different needs, maybe. I, I don't know what the, the best way is to describe it. But honestly, that's sometimes our entry, right? So in really large companies, even some Fortune 500s, we've been brought in because they acquired uh, a small engineering team. And often when large companies acquire small engineering teams, they're pretty enthusiastic about how those small engineering teams are operating, right? Um, and so they've come in and said, great, let's let's take a look at how you do things. And they say, well, we use CircleCI, we use GitHub, you know, whatever. This is our tool chain. And then the incumbent might, uh, like the, the, in terms of the existing company, would look at that and say, oh, that's, that's pretty great. I mean, we understand that, you know, and then they see them working and see how effectively they're working and will say, we, there's probably something here that we should look at. And that's been an opportunity for us to grow uh, pretty significantly in some of these large orgs. Um, in others, in other cases, it's um, it might be uh, side projects, right? We meet developers who are in large positions or important positions in terms of tooling, et cetera, in large orgs who have been, taken what's been handed down to them in terms of incumbents or whatever. But they say, you know, when, when I do something at home <clears throat> or when I do some open source contribution or whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, then I use CircleCI and like, why are we not using that here? And then that sort of starts the conversation for us. And so <clears throat> it's just a lot of it for the developers is just, again, experience, like how much work do I have to put into doing this? Um, I, I don't want to think about this system. I just want it to be reliable and stable and do the thing I need it to do. Um, and so... You know, I'm having an experience at work where honestly people are paying me for my time and I'm fiddling with these other tools. And then when I do this outside of work, it's super easy. Or maybe I came from another job. There's just so many ways that people come in with experience with Circle. Yeah, we've been around long enough. Enough people have used the platform that they just bring that into a new environment. And uh, and pretty soon after we get a call, hey, can we, you know, if it's a really large, can we can we set up a trial? Can we come, you know, do this on site? Or they just start moving some of their internal projects, um, you know, and, and some of the, um, I guess one more example would be companies that maybe have something they, they use internally, but then they have some open source projects and they can't expose their internal tools. So they come and start building their stuff on us just for open source so that they can expose the, the builds and get other people's PRs to build, et cetera. And then 
same kind of thing can happen. Wait a second, this is actually better than what we're using internally. Like, why are we not using this for all of our projects? There's lots of re like lots of pathways anyway um, that people get to us, um, but they always work out for us. Yeah, is there so? And by the way, the incumbents I'm thinking of are frankly some of those uh, existing, you know, development tools, things where they might have had Jira in and all the things that they kind of added in and it lasts in and where they kind of have existing tools that may or may not been tradition like true CICD, right? There's also the purest mm -hmm. version and kind of where they've been developing. Um, the other, so is, do, do you also align well with certain types of development models, whether it be uh, people developing in AWS and things like that? I see a lot of times tools pick a couple of say, you know, common go-to-markets and they go, okay, I'm going to align it. Like for instance, your old company was iOS. If you want iOS, I want to be the CICD for that. Are there a couple of, things like that that you really you're very very tight with where when somebody's going I'm going to go deploy like this you're the best way to do that you know and you kind of started you know the whole bowling alley thing for marketing essentially yeah so i would say that was the case early um, and that that tied to what we were what and whom we were building for i guess uh, so if you at the time in you know 2011 2012 well i'll skip to 2011 i think it was not even launched until 2012 but in the early days if you were building, again, Rails Monolith or something similar, uh, you were a GitHub user, github.com, um, and especially if you were deploying to Heroku, you basically had to click two buttons and you had a full CD pipeline. Um, and you know, we, we expanded some of those things over time, but in terms of our, our direction and goal, we are investing more today in being a flexible platform, meaning um, you know, there's going to be so many different ways to deploy your code and we want to work with all of them, but we don't want to build the engineering team per se that's going to sit like, and we don't want you to have to wait, right? In, in sort of the, the model of how we built the original Heroku capability, it's completely baked into the product, which is nice and seamless and all those things. But it means that if I don't know, make up some other provider, you decide to switch because now, you know, we're doing Docker and we're going to go to ECS directly in AWS or something like that, then, um, you know, then if we wanted to make that seamless, we would sit down as developers and build all of that code ourselves. Um, and so we're shifting our focus to be more platform oriented in terms of the ability for you to build that thing, but then maybe share it uh, with others um, so that you can, you know, so that we get more leverage out of, or even if you are building a new PaaS or, or whatever it's going to be, wherever it is in the stack, you could build that tooling um, so that all of the people who are building on CircleCI will now have access to it. Um, because we honestly, we've reached that critical mass where that would be something you would want to do. I mean, we have um, people from, I uh, think, services like um, code coverage services, um, artifact storage services, et cetera, coming to us and saying, how do, you know, how do we build this integration so that your customers can use it just because we have that, you know, that level of usage at this point. Okay, so speaking of services, but on a completely different level, uh, you wrote an article called The Tale of Two Monoliths, mm -hmm. and it was effectively your story of um, starting with services, going back to a monolith, and then breaking it back out into microservices. Um, so talk to us about that article, but also uh, some of the, the, the lessons learned uh, from you know developing code in one way versus the other, and how you should go about, uh, if you have a monolith, breaking that thing up in a, um, I don't know, I guess a, a thoughtful way. Right. So, yeah, there's, um, 
That was a, a summary, a short summary of a longer talk. So I'll try to cover some of the details. Some might be from that, some might not. But um, but we we talk constantly about microservices at CircleCI now, and the reason that we are very confident in our approach to microservices is that we fundamentally understand how our business operates. We're deep enough into this whole process that we know how architecturally things operate, where they need scaling, where they don't, um, and we understand the needs of the business. Um, and so the, the contrast in, in, that, uh, in that article is to starting Copious, where we were definitely in the, I mean, when I talk about launching in TechCrunch and everything else, and then crickets the next day, I mean, that was the experience, right? And we, uh, that was also beginning of 2011. So it was a time when services were sort of popular and people were starting to think about building in that way. And so we thought, oh, what, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, this will be a great way to build and we'll be able to scale, et cetera. But we built the wrong things, right? So we built um, we, we broke down our application in the wrong way, meaning we created seams where there shouldn't have been, and then we left seams where they, things should have been broken apart. And the net result was to get anything done, you needed to talk to everything and move massive data sets across the wire and then try to process them in your front-end Rails app. I mean, that is not a recipe for success. Um, and so... I would definitely start just from there in terms of, of my advice. Like, Make sure you really understand your business and you understand how your application operates and you're confident that that is the long-term trajectory of what you're doing before you start to pull things apart. Because in, in the early days of iterating and trying to find your idea, and this I, I always say business because I think it's startups, but this could just as easily be a new product in a very large company, right? Um, until you understand how it's going to work, and that you really have product market fit, you should not be trying to perfect the architecture because there's just going to be a lot of wasted cycles that are, I mean, they're going to get thrown out um, somewhere down the road. And so what we ended up doing there was we had to pull a lot of stuff back into that monolith and then find ways to break it out in different ways as we started to grow and understand the business. Um, so at, at CircleCI, uh, we've done a little bit of the opposite. We had a monolith for a very long time um, and we... Our challenges with our first challenges with the monolith were not even from a development perspective or um, you know understanding the code or anything like that. It was operational. We had you know a monolith eventually becomes a large pool of the same code operating, and there were areas in that code where the the fundamental assumption that there might be two or three of them, and there were now hundreds, became a real problem. So. Um, Q thrashing would be the obvious one, right? Every, every one of those instances trying to execute the same job and then having a conversation with each other, if you will, about who was really going to run it and then them all trying to take the next one so that the, the time to get a job off the queue and executed started to grow. And we actually found the sort of physical limit of how much we could scale our system before we would actually start processing fewer jobs um, as a result of adding more capacity. And so like, this is very clear at that point how our, how our stuff operates, very clear that this is what our customers are going to want to do for a long time, but actually crisis mode in terms of we can't add any more capacity. Like we have found the physical limit of how it's possible to operate the service. And so one of the first things that we did, um, it turns out this is an architecture pattern that people use. We thought we were super clever to come up with it, is, um, is define roles 
and just take the same monolith, the same code base, but block things off basically on environment variables and say, if I've been told that I am this, then I only init these parts of the code, right? So I only process jobs and then I distribute them to other boxes. And so now we're back down to a small pool of boxes, you know, pulling things off the queue and deciding where they should go instead of every box pulling something off the queue and then saying, I don't know, am I actually okay to run this job, right? So it's, it's a, normally, if you were starting out with microservices, which I just convinced you you shouldn't, you would say, okay, we'll have a job scheduler piece over here, right? Um, so taking the overall code base and pulling it apart in that way actually allowed us to, to validate some of those ideas. I mean, going back to try things iteratively, we were able to say, oh, actually this box shouldn't even do this piece of work, or it should also do this piece of work. Um, without moving huge chunks of code around, we were just, again, taking different slices of the existing code. Um, so that was a great sort of transitional model to us, um, but that gets us up to the point that I was describing earlier where we were iterating and then saying, okay, we can pull out this piece um, and iterating towards kind of a better operating model. That gave us the breathing room, if you will, to then say, okay, how should this thing really work? Which part can we work on? Let's go build from the ground up, you know, sort of an ideal service. The other, um, the other area that we sort of learned about more recently in terms of moving things to services is um, we, I, I guess, had a, had a fundamental assumption that, um, you know, we could say, okay, let's build some services. We need to build a few at the same time, kind of just talk to each other and make sure you're following some common patterns. Um, it didn't really work out that way. There was a, like a microservice is a clean slate. It's like a blank sheet of paper, right? And so you go to start working on that and you think, ooh, I heard about this other cool, you know, programming language or framework and that's going to, maybe I should try that. Maybe I could try a different database. Um, I, and then I start building and I need startup, logging, metrics, monitoring, uh, you know, retries on the network. I mean, the amount of code that's in your monolith that was written, in our case, five years ago that you never have to think about and you just use it as you're building business logic now becomes what you're doing every day again. And so um, in terms of being thoughtful about how you do it, I would highly recommend finding like A is probably starting with one service, developing some patterns and then pulling out some common capabilities and making those available to people building other services. There's a couple patterns for doing this. Lots of people are doing it, but for some reason I can't find that many people talking about it, but building sort of a, a substrate, if you will, within the service, which might be just a big library or the framework that you drop your business logic into. And then outside of that, there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of momentum behind this service mesh model, which is things like Istio, Envoy, um, Linkerd, I, I don't know all of them, but that sort of model of actually put a lot of this thinking and work outside of your service so that as you're building the service code itself, you can be focused on business logic because nobody likes slamming on the brakes in terms of delivery because they're changing their architecture, right? So we're, like I said, I'm always thinking about how can you do this in an incremental way? And uh, we definitely got a little over-enthusiastic about um, the move as we were doing some of this other 2.0 stuff and ended up uh, realizing how many open questions we had and then having to scramble to solve them all at the same time and then retrofit back into some, you know, different, we built things in some different ways. I think, I think we could probably have an entire podcast um, around this uh, whole concept of kind of breaking apart things and, and patterns and those kind of things. It sounds uh, like a fun concept of things that you've kind of learned and figured out about. And like you said, nobody's talking about it. So maybe it's time we start. 
It's it's interesting. I, well, uh, because I've listened to some of your other podcasts, I'll, I'll just jump ahead a little bit and say that that very last piece I am talking about um, at GitHub Universe in October. So if anyone wants to hear more about it, oh, uh, look they, at they that. can come. Where can we find you next? He does listen all the way to the <laughs> yeah. end too. Um, so yeah, now what speed do you listen to podcasts at? <laughs> Uh, I I listened to yours at one X because I wasn't sure yet as I was listening to the to the first few uh, what to expect right yeah uh, but I definitely I definitely do the YouTube two X thing um, and I find that a little comical because then I meet some of those people sometimes you know if I'm watching YouTube videos like from <laughs> conference talks and I think I, I you look familiar but your voice doesn't sound familiar. Um, I, I actually find it amazing, though, that the technology, how, however it's done in YouTube, of the 2x, where, where it actually still sounds roughly the same pitch a little bit, like, it just sounds fast. I, I don't know. There's something about it that yeah. is um, that is impressive to me. Yeah, somehow they take out a bunch of the white space as compared to just simply speeding it up and making everybody sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting to that point, right? Just like you've heard this part before, too, right? So uh, we've taken up a good bit of your time. Um, you know, my question for you is, as the, as the guy controlling the curtain from a technology perspective at CircleCI, uh, open it up a little bit and tell us what's next. Like, where are we headed with CircleCI and what can people expect? Yeah, I think the, the most interesting thing for us in the, in the long term, <clears throat> less about technology, but about us as a product and, and what we really see is, my view is that you can have great tools in this space whether it's Agile, CI, CD, whatever it is, um, deployment, Kubernetes, all, all these things. You can have great tools, but not still not have great processes and great culture of, around those tools. And so where we are looking to go is to be a, a tool that really helps you with all of that, more than just a reliable sort of pipeline, which is great. I mean, you can't be in the game without a reliable build process and deployment process, but then to take that up a level and be able to help you understand um, you know, how your process is working, right? So how, how often are you deploying? How successfully are you deploying? We have some of this in our product already in, in what we call insights just to see like, are your tests getting slow? Is your overall build getting slower? Do you have flaky tests that you should go deal with to really help you optimize your process and then not just your CI and CD process, but above that, your overall development process. I mean, that's what we're excited about. When I, when I can talk about this space, that's usually what I'm super excited about is not so much the, the bits and bytes of, you know, your test suite or, you know, the lines of code that you're writing, et cetera. But at a higher level, are you successfully getting your product to market faster than your competitor, right? And are you delivering what your customers want? And how can we help you do that? Um, that's where we spend most of our time thinking when we think about the, the longer term. That's fantastic. Awesome. Well, it, again, like I said, it's been, it's about that time. I'm sure you got a million meetings to get to, um, you know, and so we are going to start shutting this down. So, um, first of all, you mentioned you're, we're going to see you in October. Can you say that again? Where are we going to see you? Oh, uh, GitHub universe. Okay. Uh, it's a conference here in San Francisco. Awesome. Uh, and then, you know, as far as getting a hold of you, finding you on social media, uh, it looks like you're on Twitter and GitHub at, uh, is that Zub? Is that how you pronounce yeah. that? There's some yeah. zeros. I don't know if they're, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's the, well, it rhymes or is the first part of my last name, Zuber, um, except in the noob spelling nice. format, if you will. Early on, early on naming. So, so at Z00B, check him out on Twitter, GitHub. Um, 
We also love to ask people about reading. And again, we say it doesn't, we don't care what you're reading. We just like to share it because we always learn something new. So, uh, you know, if you've been reading something, what could we pick up and kind of learn from where you're learning? Yeah, so um, I, I've recently been flipping through something called the DevOps Handbook. Uh, it's by uh, Gene Kim, Jez Humble, and, and a couple other folks, uh, Patrick Dubois, some, some very early DevOps thinkers. Um, and I don't actually know when it was published, but yeah, there, oh, there you go. That book, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's not that <laughs> so, old. It's uh, less than six months old, I think. So yeah, very new, very new. Someone dropped a copy on my desk, uh, and I, I've really been enjoying it. Um, I think it's a good, a good summary. I mean, for me, um, I think about this stuff every day, and sometimes I neglect the literature, if you will. Um, but I find it super helpful to, first of all, there's always new ideas. You should never neglect what other people are doing. But second, um, uh, it's helpful to make sure that we're using one, one of the a big common theme for me is just um, I don't know what to call it, grammars, like. Uh, we're all using the same terminologies when we're having conversations about these things. Um, I go, you know, when I first started in engineering, the uh, Gang of Four Design Patterns was a book that changed my thinking, not so much about how to write code, but how to talk about things in technology. Like, hey, we're all doing this thing, let's give it a name, and then we can have a real conversation instead of trying to, like, figure out what that thing is we're talking about. And so I think this this kind of... Um, of literature is great for that, sort of making sure we have a really common established glossary, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it also covers some some great concepts in, in everything from how you build uh, to how you organize your teams. Um, so I think it's great for that. Those are awesome. Yeah, the DevOps Handbook was that follow-on to that uh, classic Phoenix project, right? And a bunch of smart people wrote that bad boy. So uh, yeah. I, I pre-ordered it and subscribed to their newsletter. It's uh, It helps me act like I know what I'm talking about when you show up, at least a tiny bit, right? Just uh, maybe a half a sentence ahead of you, if, if that. So that was awesome. So, uh, you know, for all of our listeners, again, you know, Rob, we appreciate you being here. Um, on behalf of the Hot Isle, we want you to continue to give us people and things to talk about. We're always getting great suggestions. Uh, and Rob is, again, uh, you know, part of somebody who is part of the social community. There was an email that came out. We chased it down, and here we are. Their, their PR team and their, their uh, admin team were, were fantastic in getting us all hooked up and, uh, you know, love things like that. So, again, on behalf of the Hot Isle, I'm Brian Carpenter. I'm Brent Piatti. And, Rob, we can't thank you enough for being here. And, uh Thanks for giving us all your knowledge today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.